Hello, I'm Frederick Gerten. I'm the filmmaker in Malmo, Sweden. And I'm Leilani Farha. I'm the advocate in rural Canada. Yeah, I can actually see you here on the video. I can see I can see a lake. That's correct. Big Gull Lake. I mean, it looks amazing. So you're actually on vacation. Vacation, indeed. One week away time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not in Ottawa. It's amazing. You really deserve it. You worked <laughs> a lot. Uh, and you really have. And and I know you you your assignment as a UN special rapporteur ended end of April. It did. And now you're a global director of the shift. Yep. But since since the lockdown mid March, you've been working twenty four seven more than ever. But you have not been traveling, but you've been on these these calls all the time. Tell me, mm. what has it all been about? Mm. I guess the virus has been up there all the time, isn't it? Absolutely. The virus took hold. Well, you'll remember, Frederick, that in early March, you and I were in London and in Prague. And the virus was known, but it hadn't been declared a pandemic. I think it got declared while we were in Prague. And I then returned back to Canada went on a what ended up being a two-day vacation with my family to Florida, got to Florida, realized this was a pandemic and that we needed to get home. And it has been nonstop ever since. And I guess for me, the story begins with the WHO, the World Health Organization, because they were the first, of course, as the World Health Organization, to come up with a prescription for this virus. And the prescription they came up with was obviously not drugs because it's a new virus. So the prescription was stay home. That was the the main message right at the beginning, stay home and then wash your hands and physical distance. Yeah. And homes, that's what you've been talking about for six years and exactly. more. Exactly. So because you before you became the UN special rapporteur, you were also also being the head of of the of the major uh, poverty and that's poverty right. organization in Canada. That's so right. so you you've been working with the homeless. That's right. I've been doing housing and <clears throat> homelessness for years and years for tw- more than 20 years. When the WHO said that we should all be staying home, it, the light bulb went on for me quite quickly. And I have to say, I think I was one of the first out the gate to really realize the implication of this for people living in homelessness um, and for people living in informal settlements. Obviously, you can't stay home if you don't have a home. So that's the entire homeless population around the world. And I know that population to be, you know, upward of, um, there's no real count, but upward of 800 million people. So you know, I, I saw a number today. There's one billion people living in informal settlements yeah. around the world. Yeah. One we say, billion. That's right. The figure I tend to use is 1.8 billion living in informal settlements and homelessness. And so if you're mm. living in an informal settlement, you know, whether it's in Kenya or whether it's in India or South Africa or wherever or Los Angeles, you don't have access to water and sanitation. You can't physically distance if you're living in an emergency shelter uh, and you don't have a home, you know, obviously, if you're living on the streets in an encampment or something like that, an informal settlement, it's not always um, enough to protect you from this virus. So I knew right away that 
that we were in troubled waters. Uh, I knew it would explode open the housing crisis that I've been talking about for six years and experiencing in every city and country that I've visited. Uh, And so I landed back home (laughs) in my home having to fight fight and argue with governments really to do more and do better to protect that particular population because this Leilani I don't I don't understand I don't think everybody understands that you actually talk to governments they talk to you they I mean you you talk to governments and you tell them you should do you should go this way and you talk to city governments I know you talk to the city of Barcelona you've talked to Paris you talk to London you talk to Montreal, to Vancouver, to Toronto, and many more cities, also in Nairobi, Kenya, and so on. I mean, yeah. so you are really a global advocate. Absolutely. Uh, and, and With so governments, what, what do you yeah. tell? What do you tell? What do you tell them? Yeah. So, well, what I did as soon as I could was I wrote a series of guidance notes and shot a series of homemade videos about what I thought governments should be doing. I actually thought, Frederick, to be honest, when when the pandemic hit and we had this and government, it wasn't just the World Health Organization, every government around the world, except maybe Sweden, <laughs> had enforced this, you know, stay home policy. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, we're going to end global homelessness. I really believed that. I've, I, that's a, I thought that's a good feeling. Yeah. So you felt good here's for the f- moment. A few, yeah. few, a few minutes, you felt <laughs> that's, good. <laughs> that's right. And and you, to be honest, I'm going to be fair here. I have spoken with particularly city level governments, and there is an understanding that homelessness has by many city level governments that homelessness has to end and that they really need to be working toward its elimination like cities like the city of london give us know, give us some examples what yeah. what has happened what has happened yeah well if you look at the city of london i mean they've had a huge homelessness problem despite some pretty good legislation in place they've had a homelessness problem obviously london is one of the most expensive cities in the world in which to live and and um a lot of homelessness. And the city moved quite quickly to house homeless people. And they they went to extreme measures. I mean, they negotiated with a major hotel chain to ensure people living on the streets could actually access safe hotel rooms and therefore physical distance uh, and have uh, access to sanitation. And they were even housing people in parts of Heathrow, the airport, because they just knew they had to get people off the streets, both to protect that population, but to protect the broader population as well, right? One person with COVID could affect the entire country's population. And so so they moved really quickly, um, even in... That in- story is not really told. I, I, I mean, this is like... Uh, I don't think everybody knows about this. No. This is like quite amazing that suddenly we've seen people sleeping rough for years. And I mean... The last year has been horrible, yes. but suddenly they, they could solve it like yeah. this. Well, Frederick, think back to us in San Francisco when push opened at the Castro and how we mm. saw wall-to-wall homeless people. Well, the city of San Francisco, city of Los Angeles, Oakland, all moved quite quickly to try to start housing people in in hotel rooms, for example, and other accommodations. I'm not saying it's enough. Uh, particularly in the California context where homelessness is huge. But but we're, we're, we have been seeing new energies for this. Look at 
Lisbon. Um, you know uh, recently that the city of Lisbon has has decided to go after uh, empty. Uh, is it empty accommodation to ensure that that's available to people who need homes rather than just sitting there idly? Um, you know, Barcelona. Well, Barcelona is now starting to actually to to take apartments if they are empty. They will just they will the city will grab them and they will pay half of the market right. price to yeah. to the owner if they if they stand empty. So either either you rent it to somebody or we will take it for half That's the right. market price. Yeah, pretty radical, pretty radical. I mean, it is. Of course, we've been agitating for these sorts of measures before the pandemic. Sometimes, obviously, it takes a pandemic to really motivate governments. One of the worries, uh, I should say also, you know, in informal settlements, I've heard that in Kenya, for example, in Nairobi, some of the largest informal settlements in the world, uh, they now have access to water and sanitation that they didn't have before. I visited Nigeria in the fall. I was alarmed by some of the conditions in informal settlements, really no water and sanitation in particular. And I've heard that food, water, and sanitation have moved in to some degree into some of those informal settlements. So, I mean, these are all very good news stories. I'm not convinced that the path forward is that pretty, to be honest. Um, So that's what I'm now obviously worried about. Um, And there's a whole other group of tenants or residents that I'm worried about and I know you are too, we've had conversations about this, but all the folks who are paying their rent, but who are hitting economic hard times and are having trouble paying the rent. And they, and they, and they yeah. can't pay the rent. And this is what also, also here in, in wealthy Sweden, we, there's a lot of reports of tenants who can't pay their rents any longer because they lost a job. There's a lot of people who have short-term jobs you know like restaurants and you know shops and so on and and they normally survive quite well i know i have a lot of friends who are Mm. musicians they are totally all of them out of work so there's a lot of people who have problems paying the rent and uh, there are some good landlords stepping out and saying okay i understand my tenants are suffering so of course i will charge only 50 percent or less but a lot of people around the world a lot of companies around the world it, for them it's business as right. usual and we hear from the united states there is a huge wave of evictions in now in the in the midst That's right, of the about pandemic. to happen yeah well and i think in some places there have been moratoriums on evictions which um i mean under international human rights law we always say uh, an eviction that leads to homelessness is not compliant with international human rights law. And many evictions for arrears result in homelessness. I would never advocate just a moratorium on those sorts of evictions. They have to, they, they, the, it was wrongheaded for governments, in my opinion, to just say moratorium. I think they could have said short-term moratorium, long-term, we're going we're gonna to look at this situation and figure out how do we keep people housed when they are not paying their rent. That would have been a very sophisticated thing for governments to do. Of course, in the midst of a pandemic, people are scrambling, governments are scrambling. I have some sympathy for them, to be honest. This is unprecedented, as everyone said. So they take these emergency measures. And then what's worrying is this failure to ensure and protect people once things, in quotes, start getting back to normal. And so 
the, in mm-hmm. the states, there have been moratoriums on evictions, but now those moratoriums are expiring. And landlords were issuing mm-hmm. eviction notices not to take place during the moratorium, but as soon as the moratorium ends, those eviction notices become live. So that's the real scare. Uh, and that's not unique to the U.S., I don't think, you know. But we're talking about millions of people. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Who are under a total stress, one stress above yeah. the other stress. Yeah. Um, but when you talk to the government, for example, of your own country, mm-hmm. Canada, so what do you tell them and what do they answer? Do they get like, oh, come on, Leilani, don't be so, don't be so aggressive? Or what, are, what, is the, what is the language? Yeah, so it depends on the, different, on the level of government. Uh, I've noticed that city-level governments are deeply concerned and really interested in having at least creative conversations. Certainly in Canada, uh, I've started a working group uh, across the country of cities. So there's 12 cities engaged from uh, Vancouver, Victoria, uh, Toronto, small town, London, Ontario, Edmonton, etc. So and that's and you're all going to watch Push. next week. Very exciting. Mm hmm. Super, super cool. But this is what I mean, Frederick. There, cities are have an appetite right now for thinking differently, for learning, for trying to fashion new remedies. So I felt at city level, the conversations, they're not easy conversations, because what I have to say is not easy. Like, so one of the things that's happened in many places is actually instead of homelessness ending, it's increased the exact opposite of what I thought should happen in the pandemic. And so why has it increased? Well, governments have imposed, let's say, distancing requirements. So if, you, if you're operating a shelter for homeless people, you suddenly have to spread the beds further apart, which means fewer beds, which means some people are out. And those people who are out have nowhere to go. So they're setting up encampments. Those encampments are then being disbanded often by police and city-level officials. And then those people also then have nowhere to go. So we're seeing kind of escalation of homelessness in some places. It's very depressing. That being said, I do think governments at city level are are really open to finding some solutions. At higher levels. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that they are... Yeah, no, go ahead. No, I, mean, I saw that in San Francisco, they're actually putting up some tent camp now. They've had all these informal camps, but now they're putting yeah. up an official tent camp with yes. showers so and the, stuff. It sounds like Africa almost. Yeah, you know? and I have, I have... You see, this is what I mean. My messages are difficult for governments to hear. I mean... I, I think a city feels like we're doing the right thing. We're sanctioning a, an encampment. We're going to make sure it has everything it needs. I've seen those places before. They're, they call them navigation centers. I went to one in San Diego. They, they Part of the problem with something like that is that it's not organic. It's not actually of the people. So it becomes this sort of state-imposed place. Often there are rules and regulations that people living in homelessness really can't abide by. For example, they might be dry locations. In other words, you can't drink alcohol. Well... For someone on in rough times and hard times, alcohol can be a soothing thing, or you can have an addiction, which is a disability of some sort, and, and you may require alcohol, and so it's no good to you. Or, or they'll say no pets, for example. Some places have that. Well, for homeless people, pets are super important, right? Because it's comfort and, and your best friend. Mm. So, so I'm not so convinced that these sanctioned encampments are 
the right solution. Um, but that's what I mean. My, my messages are tough. Back to the government. Back yeah. to, so what did the government tell you? Uh, I mean, in Canada, it's a complicated situation. The gov- federal government thinks that it's complicated because they don't have jurisdiction for housing. They're, they constitutionally... They have the ability to spend on housing, but they don't have the ability to legislate on housing is what they say. It's not totally true. And I think there's some hiding behind that. Um, It's harder to get federal government to think creatively, to to take leadership. I mean, what I was really asking, and I'm asking all national governments, regardless of the constitutional framework in a country, national governments should have been saying and should still be saying that homes are as important as ventilators, for example. Every government said, oh my God, we need ventilators and we need that, what do they call it, PPE, personal protective equipment or whatever. Every government was demanding that and saying, you know, contacting China, contacting this, trying to get those two things in place to protect against the virus. And I'm saying your, your policy, your health policy is stay at home. Surely you should be going to the same measures and exercising the same leadership to ensure everyone has access to an adequate home. And for some reason, my message, I don't know, it's not, um, uh, I, I think it's really as simple as it, there's a lack of understanding of housing as a human right. There's a lack of understanding of, of the um, contradiction in having a stay-at-home policy and then not actually ensuring everyone has a home. Oh, my gosh. So I have a little friend coming to visit. I don't know if you can see, Frederick. We're Zooming this for those of you who are listening. So there's a chipmunk right by my side. (laughs) So I was startled. Sorry. It's a chipmunk. What is it? Let's see. Oh, it ran away. It's afraid of computers, as it should be. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I was startled. Okay. <laughs> that's like sitting out yes, in the nature. Right. That's beautiful. I, I wish I could join you, but I, I guess I won't get there. Uh, so no, but I mean, it's housing. Could we could see homes as societal uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. like you know, as we see roads and bridges and and you know railroads yeah. and airports, social it's, infrastructure, it's, exactly. Our society need infrastructure, and homes yeah. are also infrastructure. And and now the government are emitting this enormous amounts of money to save yeah. the economy, you know, to save the people. But strangely enough, homes are not really on the list. So 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 you so you would say, so you would say that governments are actually missing. An opportunity here? I think they are. But then then you and I can go deeper in light of the work we've done and what, what continues to animate our thoughts and interests, which is, you see, if you give money to people and say, okay, then use that money for housing, you're not disrupting the market system of housing in any way. You're actually allowing this major economic structure and, and aspect of finance to remain intact. If you start saying, oh, we're going to buy this hotel that's a distressed asset and we're going to turn it in, it's going to become a public good and we're going to turn it into deeply affordable housing, that starts disrupting something. And I, I have to wonder mm. whether my activism is 
perceived as trying to disrupt structures that governments at national level in particular want to remain in place, you know? So that's my, that's what I mean when I say I think governments are still not willing to recognize housing as a human right. I think they're so wedded to it as a commodity and the structures in our society. So to think about it as social infrastructure is way too dismantling, perhaps, which is mm-hmm. sobering. And yeah, yeah, it's it's because, I mean, when London are putting people into hotels now during the, the, mm. the, the virus crisis, it's good for the homeless but it's also helping the hotel industry for a while absolutely so they're more into maybe they're more into saving the hotel industry than that's a homeless because it's that's not the lot it's not the long-term solution because the hotel industry will like to have their rooms back Um, so it's all about having affordable homes for everybody and of course homeless people also need support so they can they can pay the rent absolutely and that will be I think you tapped right into, you know, sort of where my where my gaze is now because it's like, okay, so things are opening up this stage three or whatever they call it in different countries and in in at least in the global north, things are opening up. What's going to happen? Are they going to return people living in hotels onto the streets? One thing that's I think. Well, under international law, that's considered retrogressive and is also not compliant. So once you've improved someone's condition, you can't then turn around and make it worse again. Although, you know, presumably they can plead bankruptcy or they can plead austerity, um, which they've done before, right? Governments have done that before. So, but now's the time to be asking those questions. What What's the long-term plan here? And I, I mean, you know... Because it's it's it, it's I mean this virus crisis is it's horrible and it's stressful for everyone, uh, but in many countries it was actually the rich people who were out traveling who brought it in for their from their vacations in Italy and Austria and other places, and I'm especially in Latin America and Africa yes. and other places it's, it it actually was the rich people traveling in, and I remember when you, we talked just when this started that you said this will soon be a problem for the for other people you know and now we can there is a very clear pattern also also here in Sweden that that people who are living too many in one small apartment you know people who who can't work at home people who have driving buses sitting in the supermarkets uh, you know even hospital workers and so on are the ones who are have been most severely hit Absolutely. by the virus and and now we, you can see the explosion in in brazil and the us it's like it's it's a lot of low income people you could also call them working class or you you could call them i mean you are not a marxist and i don't read that <laughs> thick books anyway so <laughs> but it's but i mean it's there is some kind of societal structure in who are suffering most and still, I, I don't. I, it's not really what we talk about here in Europe. It's been there was like a big. It's been a big thing about this, this support package, big right. ne- negotiations between the government to save the economy, especially for the countries worst hit, Italy and Spain. Uh, 
But nobody, I mean, even, I mean, Greta Thunberg is like criticizing them for putting the cli yeah. climate aside. And, and, and we could also criticize them for putting the housing story issue Absolutely. aside because it's not it's on, not the, on table. the table. Not in, a, not in the real way, not in a significant way. And with all this money they are putting out, they could actually do something. Yeah, absolutely. Because somebody else is doing mm -hmm. something. So this is something we also raised. When economy go down, there is like it's a, it's bargain time it's shopping time for people who are sitting on big amounts of money and who are the who are these guys lately? yeah the big financial actors the the private equity firms who still have most of their money intact um, their liquidity remains their ability to create investment funds remains uh, last week I saw two announcements that Blackstone um, had managed to I guess finalize two big investment funds one of which is a real estate fund um, and so they're waiting and I you know I and I, I know you do too. I'm constantly reading, like, what are these guys up to? What are they saying? What are they anticipating? And you see, part of the problem is that they will pounce, but it's not necessarily tomorrow. If you look at 08 in the global financial crisis or the Great Recession in 08 and 09, what happened was it took a bit of time before it became clear that there were going to be all these distressed assets, right? Assets don't become distressed overnight. That's, a, that's something that happens over time. And so these guys are waiting. They know that this will happen. They're talking about it. I'm reading article after article in the business section of various newspapers and magazines and online things. Uh, and so they will pounce when, when they feel the time is right. The question is, how do we get governments to do what's necessary to, to make that um, a hostile environment so that they don't invade like they did in 08 and 09? Mm. There were some governments saying early on that we will not give support packages to companies who have shell companies in tax havens. Uh, but it's been really silent about that. And I, I guess the reason is that it's the tax havens, I mean, all companies have shell companies in tax havens. Yeah. And of course, they also have official companies in, in, in real legislation. So I guess they find a way to, to get the support packages mm. anyway. And then... It, you also mentioned early on that that Blackstone, the big the, the biggest private equity firm, they were part of a group lobbying the American, the U.S. Congress, on the crisis packages, the content of the crisis right. packages, which meant that then the, the the fracking industry that that naturally should go down because it would be a good thing for the planet if it went down, got mm -hmm. a lot of money. So this is you can see how these guys yeah. act. They act to protect themselves, and of course, um, helping helping uh, poor people to get a home is totally mm. not in their interest. Yeah, you know what dawns on me just now, Frederick, is it seems to me that the arguments that are becoming persuasive for government action are arguments where. Um, you know, if if government does this, it's going to be good for the economy. And that's where, you know, if we start arguing, well, 
you know, you need more affordable housing. That's good for the economy. Governments don't see that as the truth, even though that there is truth there. Um, but that's what worries me, right? So we have to, I think, um, talk more about the myth that private equity somehow creates financial energy that it somehow contributes to economies because I think in one of our previous podcasts we we did discuss that not at length but you know people like Stiglitz uh, the Nobel laureate economist and Saskia Sassen the sociologist um, talk about the fact that this is not productive money it doesn't produce things for economies this private equity money that that gets sunk into real estate and so I think part of our work now is to get that message out because I think the resistance against doing anything around housing is, well, how is that good for the economy? And right now, everything has to be about the economy because the world is suffering and huge, huge losses. Yeah, people, I mean, the, the economy, I guess the economy should be there for the people in the countries or the people of the world. We That's why we need an economy mm-hmm. that works so people don't starve, I guess. But what I mean, the result of the 08 crisis is that the income equality has grown in an extreme way. So the, the I mean, none of us have really made uh, I mean, we're still at the same level as That's 10 right. years ago. But then this kind of the one percenters, whatever, they are, they are so much richer now. And 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 them being richer is not only uh, you know a problem of you know oh envy or something like that. It's it's actually a democratic problem that they are richer because they are now much stronger, right. stronger in buying lobby, pushing yeah. governments, making moves, making it harder for governments and local governments to move because they are also pushing up the prices of building and 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 uh, the homes and the, and the grounds mm. in the city so it's 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 harder for for local local governments to move now and than before so it's it, it is a democratic problem that the income inequality is is so much worse now than, than before it's it's been bad before but it's now it's at a new level and, and this new level also means that it's an, the interesting thing is that now almost like the 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 the, the, the up, even the upper middle class is now also a part of like the same kind of segment because you can see now in many cities when I you know I talk about people mm. marching in the streets in in Chile in Beirut or in the US it's not only the poor people or the you know the students whatever it's actually also That's architects right. out there it's like yeah. engineers out there it's doctors out there because they're also amongst people who have lost out so it's 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 like if the whole normal civil mm. society have lost out and these guys they're still on the top and they're still on the top of the storytelling of you know how we explain how we understand mm-hmm. the economy and 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 of course that their explanation models are the ones they use to to push for these support packages that are now saving their business but yeah. not the people which is i think totally yeah, no, problematic it, 
That was a little yeah, speech yeah, for like me, that. wasn't it? I like it? that speech. It I was even... good. It was good. It made me think for some reason. I did read yesterday that in this, you know, presidential, U.S. presidential uh, time, as they're, you know, everyone, they're all campaigning. I did hear or read that Biden has said that he's going to impose some corporate tax on institutional investors in real estate and then use that tax to fund a so, some social program. But it wasn't a housing program. So, of course, I took issue with that. But still, it is interesting to me that it's now under at least it's acceptable for him to articulate that. You've got to think this is a very mainstream, probably right of center politician going after real estate transactions. I, I actually saw a scary thing or an interesting thing on on, on Bloomberg mm-hmm. News the other day is, and that is um, one of the big mm. Blackstone guys oh. is uh, he had a, what do you call it? Funding yeah. party for, for Biden. So he right. actually is making rich people put money t- towards Biden. And then he said this, they probably, he, he wants to be the new minister of oh. commerce, whatever it's called. Oh, so you could see, I mean, the positive note could be that also Blackstone, the other guys can see that Trump right. might lose. So they need to put money on yeah. the other side. So they don't get, you know, they have to invest mm. into the new yes. government and to make sure that they will get a say mm. in the new politics coming up. So let's keep our let's keep our eye on whether Biden, if he does win, whether he sticks to his corporate tax on on institutional investors in real estate, if if now Blackstone is going after them for support. Yeah, it's I mean, but I mean, I, you know, these guys, they they put money in all campaigns yeah. if they can. So if they 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 are probably have more money into Trump's campaign anyway, but so but but it's like it's they 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 are guy they are yeah. gambling guys, you know. So they for them it's it's politics is also about placing your yeah. marks, you know. Yeah. And you lose and you win. Mm-hmm. It's not a big thing. But you know, some of the big voices in the states are coming out. I mean, yesterday AOC had a video that came across my feed uh, where she's you know saying. Um, you know, housing is a human right. Ilhan Omar, also a congresswoman, you know, housing is a human right. So maybe that will influence the Bidens, right? Up to the same party. That's good. And 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 push the film. Yes. <laughs> now we, we have release dates. So it will be released in the US early yeah. September. It should have been out already end of April. Uh, so we had a theatrical release booked. It was booked for many cities, so it's halted. And hopefully we can get it out now. We we still don't really know in what conditions because we don't know if the theaters will be open. So it's a, it's a special It's a time. perfect time. But for sure, <laughs> if you are in the U.S., write to us because we need your help to get this film out because it's very it's a very good tool to to talk about things, also what happens in your own city. And if you if you like this podcast, you should rate it high on <laughs> iTunes. I hear that something really five stars is important. So tell your friends to friends to rate it high, and and spread the news about this podcast. We are still beginners and, and learners, but so also give us feedback how we can do it better, and uh, and maybe also subject yes. matters things you you think we should look into. And if if you haven't seen the film, it's out on in most countries in the world and you can find it through pushthefilm.com 
Uh, Leilani, in the early part of this uh, podcast, talked about her recommendations to to governments. So you should then go to her website, maketheshift.org, where you can actually read all about this. Uh, the, the website is quite new. There, is, there are some fixes to be yes. done, I could see. You still have this kind of... <laughs> yes, we're working <laughs> <But> anyway, on it. <laughs> anyway, it's... Uh, it's it, you're working on it, but there is, I mean, your your recommendations to governments and cities are up there. So use them if you're working on in a city uh, in some kind of level. Uh, bring it bring it to your to your mayor's attention and and have them to join this shift because it's a global movement um, about the right to housing. Leilani, I think you should. It's time for Maybe you go, go for. for a swim. I, Actually, I would like to see to just walk out and jump into the water. And that would be amazing. But it's you should you should go for a swim, and I will also go for a swim because it's actually oh, also a nice no. day here. in I have to go before Malmo. the rains come down. Yes, indeed. And and this podcast is now out on most platforms. Tell us if you're missing it somewhere. And our idea is to post it uh, every new every Friday at noon Central European time. So it means six o'clock in the morning in your Eastern zone of North America. But it, you can you can find it every Friday. We hope to be out there and and spread the news and have a good. Thanks, swing. Frederick. <laughs> you too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I love this one. Take Bye. care. See you. Bye.